Chapter 19 of The Alaskan This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood Chapter 19 Alan's first thought was of the monstrous incongruity of the thing, the almost physical impossibility of a mesalliance of the sort Mary Standish had revealed to him. He saw her, young and beautiful, with face and eyes, that from the beginning had made him feel all that was good and sweet in life, and behind her he saw the shadow hulk of John Graham, the pitiless iron man, without conscience and without soul, coarsened by power, fiendish in his iniquitous, and old enough to be her father. A slow smile twisted his lips, but he did not know he smiled. He pulled himself together without letting her see the physical part of the effort it was taking, and he tried to find something to say that would help clear her eyes of the agony that was in them. "'That is a most unreasonable thing to be true,' he said. It seemed to him his lips were making words out of wood, and that the words were fatuously inefficient compared with what he should have said or acted under the circumstances. She nodded. "'It is, but the world doesn't look at it in that way. Such things just happen.' She reached for a book which lay on the table, where the tundra daisies were heaped. It was a book written around the early phases of pioneer life in Alaska, taken from his own library, a volume of statistical worth, dryly but carefully written, and she had been reading it. It struck him as a symbol of the fight she was making of her courage, and of her desire to triumph in the face of tremendous odds that must have beset her. He still could not associate her completely with John Graham. Yet his face was cold and white. Her hand trembled a little as she opened the book and took from it a newspaper clipping. She did not speak as she unfolded it and gave it to him. At the top of two printed columns was the picture of a young and beautiful girl. In an oval covering a small space over the girl's shoulder was a picture of a man of fifty or so. Both were strangers to him. He read their names and then the headlines. A hundred million dollar love was the caption and after the word love was a dollar sign. Youth and age, beauty and the other thing, two great fortunes united. He caught the idea and looked at Mary Standish. It was impossible for him to think of her as Mary Graham. I tore that from a paper in Cordova, she said. They have nothing to do with me. The girl lives in Texas. But don't you see something in her eyes? Can't you see it, even in the picture? She has on her wedding things. But it seemed to me, when I saw her face, 
that in her eyes were agony and despair and hopelessness, and that she was bravely trying to hide them from the world. It's just another proof, one of thousands, that such unreasonable things do happen. He was beginning to feel a dull and painless sort of calm, the stoicism which came to possess him whenever he was confronted by the inevitable. He sat down, and, with his head bowed over it, took one of the limp little hands that lay in Mary Standish's lap. The warmth had gone out of it. It was cold and lifeless. He caressed it gently and held it between his brown, muscular hands, staring at it, and yet seeing nothing in particular. It was only the ticking of Keok's clock that broke the silence for a time. Then he released the hand, and it dropped in the girl's lap again. She had been looking steadily at the streak of grey in his hair, and a light came into her eyes, a light which he did not see, and a little tremble of her lips, and an almost imperceptible inclination of her head toward him. "'I'm sorry I didn't know,' he said. I realize now how you must have felt back there in the cottonwoods. No, you don't realize, you don't, she protested. In an instant, it seemed to him, a vibrant, flaming life swept over her again. It was as if his words had touched fire to some secret thing, as if he had unlocked a door which grim hopelessness had closed. He was amazed at the swiftness with which color came into her cheeks. "'You don't understand, and I am determined that you shall,' she went on. "'I would die before I let you go away thinking what is now in your mind. You will despise me, but I would rather be hated for the truth than because of the horrible thing which you must believe if I remain silent.' She forced a wan smile to her lips. You know, Belinda Mulroonies were very well in their day, but they don't fit in now, do they? If a woman makes a mistake and tries to remedy it in a fighting sort of way, as Belinda Mulroney might have done back in the days when Alaska was young. She finished with a little gesture of despair. I have committed a great folly, she said, hesitating an instant in his silence. I see very clearly now the course I should have taken. You will advise me that it is still not too late when you have heard what I am going to say. Your face is like a rock. It is because your tragedy is mine, he said. She turned her eyes from him. The color in her cheeks deepened. It was a vivid, feverish glow. I was born rich, enormously hatefully rich, she said in the low, unimpassioned voice of a confessional. I don't remember father or mother. I lived always with my grandfather Standish and my uncle Peter Standish. Until I was thirteen I had my uncle Peter, who was grandfather's brother, and lived with us. I worshipped uncle Peter. He was a cripple. From young manhood he had lived in a wheelchair, 
and he was nearly seventy-five when he died. As a baby, that wheelchair and my rides in it with him about the great house in which we lived were my delights. He was my father and mother, everything that was good and sweet in life. I remember thinking as a child that if God was as good as Uncle Peter, he was a wonderful God. It was Uncle Peter who told me year after year the old stories and legends of the Standishes, and he was always happy, always happy and glad, and seeing nothing but sunshine, though he hadn't stood on his feet for nearly sixty years. And my Uncle Peter died when I was thirteen, five days before my birthday came. I think he must have been to me what your father was to you. He nodded. There was something that was not the hardness of rock in his face now, and John Graham seemed to have faded away. I was left then alone with my grandfather Standish, she went on. He didn't love me as Uncle Peter loved me, and I don't think I loved him. But I was proud of him. I thought the whole world must have stood in awe of him, as I did. As I grew older, I learned the world was afraid of him. Bankers, presidents, even the strongest men in great financial interests, afraid of him and of his partners, the Grahams, and of Sharpley, who my Uncle Peter had told me was the cleverest lawyer in the nation, and who had grown up in the business of the two families. My grandfather was sixty-eight when Uncle Peter died, so it was John Graham who was the actual working force behind the combined fortunes of the two families. Sometimes, as I now recall it, Uncle Peter was like a little child. I remember how he tried to make me understand just how big my grandfather's interests were by telling me that if two dollars were taken from every man, woman, and child in the United States, it would just about add up to what he and the Grahams possessed, and my grandfather Standish's interests were three-quarters of the whole. I remember how a haunted look would come into my Uncle Peter's face at times when I asked him how all this money was used, and where it was, and he never answered me as I wanted to be answered and I never understood. I didn't know why people feared my grandfather and John Graham. I didn't know of the stupendous power my grandfather's money had rolled up for them. I didn't know. Her voice sank to a shuddering whisper. I didn't know how they were using it in Alaska, for instance. I didn't know it was feeding upon starvation and ruin and death. I don't think even Uncle Peter knew that. She looked at Alan steadily, and her grey eyes seemed burning up with a slow fire. Why, even then, before Uncle Peter died, I had become one of the biggest factors in all their schemes. It was impossible for me to suspect that John Graham was anticipating a little girl of thirteen. And I didn't guess that my grandfather Standish, so straight, so grandly white of beard and hair, 
so like a god of power when he stood among men, was even then planning that I should be given to him, so that a monumental combination of wealth might increase itself still more in that juggernaut of financial achievement for which he lived. And to bring about my sacrifice, to make sure it would not fail, they set sharply to the task, because Sharpley was sweet and good of face, and gentle like Uncle Peter, so that I loved him and had confidence in him, without a suspicion that under his white hair lay a brain which matched in cunning and mercilessness that of John Graham himself. And he did his work well, Alan. A second time she had spoken his name, softly and without embarrassment with her nervous fingers tying and untying the two corners of a little handkerchief in her lap, she went on, after a moment of silence, in which the ticking of Keok's clock seemed tense and loud. When I was seventeen, Grandfather Standish died. I wish you could understand all that followed without my telling you, how I clung to Sharpley as a father, how I trusted him, and how cleverly and gently he educated me to the thought that it was right and just, and my greatest duty in life, to carry out the stipulation of my grandfather's will and marry John Graham. Otherwise, he told me, if that union was not brought about before I was twenty-two, not a dollar of the great fortune would go to the house of Standish. And because he was clever enough to know that money alone would not urge me. He showed me a letter which he said my Uncle Peter had written, and which I was to read on my seventeenth birthday. And in that letter Uncle Peter urged me to live up to the Standish name and join in that union of the two great fortunes which he and Grandfather Standish had always planned. I didn't dream the letter was a forgery and in the end they won, and I promised. She sat with bowed head, crumpling the bit of cambric between her fingers. Do you despise me? she asked. No, he replied in a tense, unimpassioned voice. I love you. She tried to look at him calmly and bravely. In his face again lay the immobility of rock, and in his eyes a sullen, slumbering fire. I promised, she repeated quickly, as if regretting the impulse that had made her ask him the question. But it was to be business, a cold, unsentimental business. I disliked young Graham, yet I would marry him. In the eyes of the law I would be his wife. In the eyes of the world I would remain his wife, but never more than that. They agreed, and I, in my ignorance, believed. I didn't see the trap. I didn't see the wicked triumph in John Graham's heart. No power could have made me believe then that he wanted to possess only me, that he was horrible enough to want me, even without love, that he was a great monster of a spider, and I, the fly, lured into his web and then the agony of it was that in all the years since Uncle Peter died I had dreamt strange and beautiful dreams. I lived in a make-believe world of my own, and I read, 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 
and the thought grew stronger and stronger in me that I had lived another life somewhere, and that I belonged back in the years when the world was clean, and there was love and vast reaches of land wherein money and power were little guessed of, and where romance and the glory of manhood and womanhood rose above all other things. Oh, I wanted these things! and yet because others had moulded me and because of my misguided standish sense of pride and honour i was shackling myself to john graham in the last months preceding my twenty-second birthday i learned more of the man than i had ever known before rumours came to me i investigated a little and i began to find the hatred and the reason for it which has come to me so conclusively here in alaska i almost knew at the last that he was a monster but the world had been told i was to marry him and sharpley with his fatherly hypocrisy was behind me and john graham treated me so courteously and so coolly that i did not suspect the terrible things in his heart and mind and i went on with the bargain i married him she drew a sudden deep breath as if she had passed through the ordeal of what she had most dreaded to say and now meeting the changeless expression of alan's face with a fierce little cry that leaped from her like a flash of gunfire she sprang to her feet and stood with her back crushed against the tundra flowers her voice trembling as she continued while he stood up and faced her you needn't go on he interrupted in a voice so low and terrible hard that she felt the menacing thrill of it you needn't i will settle with john graham if god gives me the chance you would have me stop now before i have told you of the only shred of triumph to which i may lay claim she protested oh you may be sure that i realize the sickening folly and wickedness of it all but i swear before my god that i didn't realize it then until it was too late to you alan clean as the great mountains and plains that have been part of you i know how impossible this must seem that i should marry a man i at first feared then loathed then came to hate with a deadly hatred that i should sacrifice myself because i thought it was a duty that i should be so weak so ignorant so like soft clay in the hands of those i trusted yet i tell you that at no time did i think or suspect that i was sacrificing myself at no time blind though you may call me did i see a hint of that sickening danger into which i was voluntarily going no not even an hour before the wedding did i suspect that for it had all been so coldly planned like a great deal in finance so carefully adjudged by us all as a business affair that i felt no fear except that sickness of soul which comes of giving up one's life and no hint of it came until the last of the few words were spoken which made us man and wife and then i saw in john graham's eyes something which i had never seen before and sharply her hands caught at her breast 
Her grey eyes were pools of flame. I went to my room. I didn't lock my door, because never had it been necessary to do that. I didn't cry. No, I didn't cry. But something strange was happening to me, which tears might have prevented. It seemed to me there were many walls to my room. I was faint. The windows seemed to appear and disappear, and in that sickness I reached my bed. Then I saw the door open, and John Graham came in, and closed the door behind him, and locked it. My room! He had come into my room! The unexpectedness of it, the horror, the insult, roused me from my stupor. I sprang up to face him, and there he stood within arm's reach of me, a look in his face which told me at last the truth which I had failed to suspect or fear. His arms were reaching out. "'You are my wife,' he said. "'Oh, I knew then.' "'You are my wife,' he repeated. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. And then, then his arms reached me. I felt them crushing around me like the coils of a great snake. The poison of his lips was at my face, and I believed that I was lost, and that no power could save me in this hour from the man who had come to my room, the man who was my husband. I think it was Uncle Peter who gave me voice, who put the right words in my brain, who made me laugh, yes, laugh, and almost caress him with my hands. The change in me amazed him, stunned him, and he freed me, while I told him that in these first few hours of wifehood I wanted to be alone, and that he should come to me that evening, and that I would be waiting for him and I smiled at him as I said these things, smiled while I wanted to kill him. And he went, a great, gloating, triumphant beast, believing that the obedience of wifehood was about to give him what he had expected to find through dishonor, and I was left alone. I thought of only one thing then, escape. I saw the truth. It swept over me, inundated me, roared in my ears. All that I had ever lived with Uncle Peter came back to me. This was not his world. It had never been, and it was not mine. It was, all at once, a world of monsters. I wanted never to face it again, never to look into the eyes of those I had known. And even as these thoughts and desires swept upon me, I was filling a travelling bag in a fever of madness, and Uncle Peter was at my side, urging me to hurry, telling me I had no minutes to lose, for the man who had left me was clever and might guess the truth that lay hid behind my smiles and cajolery. I stole out through the back of the house, and as I went I heard Sharpley's low laughter in the library. It was a new kind of laughter and with it I heard John Graham's voice. I was thinking only of the sea, to get away on the sea. A taxi took me to my bank, and I drew money. I went to the wharves, intent only on boarding a ship, any ship, and it seemed to me that Uncle Peter was leading me, and we came to a great ship that was leaving for Alaska, and you know what happened then?' 
Alan Holt. With a sob she bowed her face in her hands, but only an instant it was there. And when she looked at Alan again, there were no tears in her eyes, but a soft glory of pride and exultation. I'm clean of John Graham, she cried. Clean! He stood twisting his hands, twisting them in a helpless, futile sort of way, and it was he and not the girl who felt like bowing his head that the tears might come unseen. For her eyes were bright and shining and clear as stars. Do you despise me now? I love you, he said again, and made no movement toward her. I am glad, she whispered, and she did not look at him, but at the sunlit plain which lay beyond the window. And uh, Rosland was on the gnome and saw you and sent word back to Graham, he said, fighting to keep himself from going nearer to her. She nodded. Yes, and so I came to you, and failing there I leaped into the sea, for I wanted them to think I was dead. And uh, Rosland was hurt. Yes, strangely. I heard of it in Cordova. Men like Rosland frequently come to unexpected ends. He went to the door which he had closed and opened it, and stood looking toward the blue billows of the foothills with the white crests of the mountains behind them. She came after a moment and stood beside him. I understand, she said softly, and her hand lay in a gentle touch upon his arm. You are trying to see some way out, and you can see only one. That is to go back, face the creatures I hate, regain my freedom in the old way. And I, too, can see no other way. I came on impulse. I must return with impulse and madness burned out of me. And I am sorry. I dread it. I would rather die. And I, he began, then caught himself and pointed to the distant hills and mountains. The herds are there, he said. I am going to them. I may be gone a week or more. Will you promise me to be here when I return? Yes, if that is your desire. It is. She was so near that his lips might have touched her shining hair. And uh, when you return, I must go? That will be the only way. I think so. It will be hard. It may be, after all, that I am a coward, but to face all that alone. You won't be alone, he said quietly, still looking at the faraway hills. If you go, I am going with you. It seemed as if she had stopped breathing for a moment at his side. And then, with a little sobbing cry, she drew away from him and stood at the half-open door of Navadlok's room. And the glory in her eyes was the glory of his dreams, as if he had wandered with her hand in hand over the tundras in those days of grief and half-madness when he had thought she was dead. I am glad I was in Ellen McCormick's cabin the day you came, she was saying, and I thank God for giving me the madness and courage to come to you. 
I am not afraid of anything in the world now, because I love you, Alan. And as Nawadlook's door closed behind her, Alan stumbled out into the sunlight, a great drumming in his heart and a tumult in his brain that twisted the world about him until for a little it held neither vision nor space nor sound. End of chapter 19 of The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood Read by Lars Rolander